My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. read our passage this morning as we're walking through the Bible and journeying through the Bible as a church and we're trying to hit those kind of major events. I know reading the Bible in one year can be, feel pretty fast. You're actually moving through a lot of events. So sometimes it gets lost. If you're on that journey with us, thank you for doing that. If you haven't joined us, we're going to jump into the New Testament here in the end of September. You can jump on at that time. That'd be a good time to kind of jump in and see if you can complete the New Testament before the end of the year. What we do is we want to read a passage of scripture that reminds us why we're on this journey. So read with me. We're going to do 2 Peter chapter 3. There it is. 2 Peter chapter 2. Just kidding. 2 Peter chapter... (sighs) My name is Paul. Welcome to Sunrise. Okay. 2 Peter... One dot dot two slash two NLT parentheses. Okay, here we go. First word. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This, this passage right here, I hope this informs your expectation of when you come to service. When you come to Sunrise or you come to one of our small groups, you jump into community, whatever it is, we're always going to center everything we do around God's Word. And you notice at the very end of that passage, it spoke at how God spoke through the prophets. I hope your expectation is this. I hope you have lofty expectations when you come in this room. I hope your expectations are, man, I bet the jokes are going to be funny. Okay, ask around. That's, we're not going to meet that, okay? Uh, maybe you're, you come in your expectations, I bet the music's going to be good. Now, I'm going to say that one is more true than the funny joke one. Okay, that, we're going to hit that bar probably more than we hit the humor bar. But I hope your standard is even higher than that. I hope your standard is God is going to speak to me today. God is going to speak to me today. The God of the universe who made everything that you see, everything that you get to enjoy here right now in the summer, right? All that beauty, all that wonder, all that mystery that is outside of you, all the mystery inside of you, that God wants to speak to you today. And that should be your standard. 
coming in saying, God, speak to me. Now, maybe you're just exploring Christianity and that's where you are. You say, Paul, that's, that's the kind of category that I would belong to. I would check that box and say, I'm not yet committed, but I'm exploring. I hope you come with the same expectation that God is going to speak. And the only thing that could prevent that is if it put, you put your fingers in your ears and say, I don't want to hear today. Because we're going to be faithful to open this book, to explain it as best as we possibly can. And we believe this thing is living and active and God is ready to speak if you're open to it. So I pray today that you're open to hearing from God because he speaks through his prophets. One of the prophets we're going to unpack, or the prophet we're going to unpack today is Daniel. We're going to look at an event in that book. And if you've been walking through or with us through the Bible, we've been walking through the kind of the, the big prophets in the Old Testament. And now we're in the book of Daniel. And there's an event in Daniel chapter 3 that really is a, is a difficult event, but then that difficult event has a very shocking response. There are three young men who find themselves in a, in a hard situation, and their response to the situation is, is really shocking. And I just want to jump right in to that kind of shocking response, because I think what we see in their response is some, some principle that could really help us in our every day life. Let me just give you kind of the context before we get to that situation. What's happened is King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, that's where the people are now. They've lost their land. The northern kingdom was taken away by the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom was taken away by the Babylonians. The people of Judah were, were taken and brought into Babylon. They were living as exiles, living as foreigners, people in a completely different land, a different language, a different customs, different education system, different everything. And so they're living in this foreign land, and it's very difficult. There's tension and friction between the practices and the ideas that they had in the land of Judah, and now the ideas and the practices of the land of Babylon. And this new king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has been in his reign for a couple of years. He wants to unite his kingdom and make sure everything is together. So he has this idea of building a statue. So he builds this massive statue and plates it with gold, probably of the god Marduk, their main god in Babylon. And he parades it out and he wants people to worship it. In fact, everybody in his kingdom is to worship this statue he's built. And what he's trying to do is kind of unify his young reign, unify his young nation, at least young under his reign, unify them under one religion. Yes, you may have many other gods that you worship, but you're going to worship this one. You're going to worship Marduk, this main god. In fact, if you don't, I'll throw you in the fire. So these three young Jewish boys, probably in their teenage years, are faced with a crisis, a dilemma, a crossroads. Either we follow the king's command and we worship this statue, or we face the fiery furnace. We face suffering. And what they say is so shocking. Let me show you this. This is in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Look at how these guys respond. And now they're talking directly to the king. There's been rumors that these boys won't worship. There's been rumors that they're not bowing down, that the music is playing and they're not following along. And so the king comes to these men, which probably shows a sense of prominence, that they have some sense of leadership in this land, even though that they're exiles. And the king directly tells them, this is what you have to do. Bow down and worship or face the fire. And look at what these three young Jewish boys say 
to the king of Babylon. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, not an official, not somebody standing in, straight to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. What are they saying? Hey, we are guilty as charged. You heard rumors that we wouldn't worship? You're right. That's true. We're guilty. We will not worship this statue. The band can play all they want. They can hit all the instruments that they want. All the chords, all the melodies will be right. We're not going to worship. Look at how they continue on. Verse 17. If we, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Look at how respectful they are. Your majesty. Even in their rebellion, they're respectful. Isn't that interesting? They don't curse him. They don't do anything like that. They're polite. But they're also politely rebellious. No, we're not going to do it. And if you throw us in the fire, we believe our God can save us from the furnace. And then they kind of give their wish, right? We hope that he will do this. Now look at this next phrase, because this is where it's hard to make sense of this. Okay, look at the next phrase that they say. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Verse 18. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have set up. Here's what I find really odd. Right? They are communicating to the king and they really give him three ideas. Two of the ideas are what's what I like to call fixed points. They're certainties. They're absolutes. We're not compromising here. But then they communicate their third idea and their third idea is uncertain. Let me give you the fixed points first. The fixed points first are they're saying, you know what? We're not going to worship. We're not going to worship this statue. The first fi fixed point is their devotion. We are going to sing to Yahweh and to him alone. That's it. We're going to sing to the God of our ancestors, the God of Israel. That's where our praise belongs. We are not compromising on where we worship and who we worship. The second fixed point is this. God can free us, deliver us. He is able. He is powerful. But then the third point is uncertain. They don't know if God will free them. They say, but even if he doesn't, we believe he can. We're hoping that he will, but we don't know if he will. This really grabbed me this week. Because I thought about my worship, I thought about my times of singing, I thought about my times of praise, and I was just trying to catalog and, and just kind of run through all of those experiences where I find it so easy to sing and so easy to praise God and so easy to worship. And when I kind of scanned those different experiences in my mind, what I found is what, what really caused those moments of praise and worship, and maybe you can identify with this as well, is really it was a, a gratefulness. You know, is God answering prayer? It was God delivering me from pain. God moving me out of a bad situation. And that's when I would worship. And the Bible is filled with songs of gratitude. 
poems of praise and thanksgiving because God has delivered. God has answered prayer. But there's something different about these, I'll call them boys, worship. They're saying, we're going to worship even if he doesn't deliver. He may deliver, but we don't know. It's uncertain to us. That kind of stopped me and I said, now wait a second. How can they worship a God they're not sure if he's going to deliver? How can they worship a God who hasn't delivered them? Take that even further. They're saying, even if he doesn't deliver us, even if we're burning in that furnace, we'll still worship. We still will not bow to your God. We will still stay true to our God. Think about your worship. Think about your singing. Think about the songs you've given up to the Lord. What grounds them? What gives them a foundation? What is the soil, if you will, of your, of your singing? Because I think what we're challenged here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they believe that there's something more foundational, something stronger to ground our worship in than gratitude. That even if God is not answering your prayers... Even if you're in the middle of a present mess and you haven't been delivered, you can still sing in the middle of a mess. You can sing when he answers your prayers and says no. Yes, you can sing when he says yes. That's the easy time. But you can sing even before he answers, even before he delivers, and you can sing even if he doesn't deliver. How can these boys say this? I think we have to go back to Daniel chapter 2 to find the ground, the soil of their singing, the foundation of their praise. And I think what we'll find is there's something stronger, something more certain, something more consistent than gratitude to place our worship on. And that thing is trust. The big idea for this morning is this, and I think this is what we're going to learn from Daniel chapter 2 as we examine that, this out, is the reason these boys can sing is because trust sings louder than gratitude. And again, gratitude is a good thing. The scriptures are filled with it. You could probably think of three or four scripture passages in your mind that you could recall of us praising God for his deliverance, praising God for answered prayer, praising God for coming through, praising God for fighting the battle. But there is more that can ground our worship than just present deliverance. There's something deeper, and this is what these boys found. There is trust. Trust in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the mess, when God hasn't yet delivered or may not deliver. You can sing even when the doctor tells you your cancer has returned. You can sing even after the years of counseling, the years of therapy, the years of talks and conversation and confession and humility, and your wife still tells you, I'm still leaving. You can still sing when those beautiful babies that you raised and were there for the walking and the crawling and playing airplane to get them eat vegetables, when they hurt you and wound you and run away from you and maybe even steal from you to feed their habit. Even in the mess of this life, 
you can still sing. And you can sing loud. Why? Because the soil of our singing runs so much deeper than gratitude. Our foundation of our praise is so much stronger than just being based off of present deliverance. There's something much deeper. Let me show you this. Go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. These young men are able to make this just almost outlandish claim of their devotion to worship God, no matter if their deliverance happens or not. The reason they're able to do this is because what they see and what they hear in Daniel chapter 2. Now, we're not going to go through the whole of chapter 2. We're going to hit a big chunk of it, but let me summarize before we get to that moment that I think really crystallizes this principle of trust for these young boys. King Nebuchadnezzar, again, uh, is in this chapter. And King Nebuchadnezzar at this time, again, very, very early in his reign, maybe the first year of his reign from what we can tell, has this terrifying nightmare. He wakes up and he is just in a knot. Whatever he dreamed is terrifying him. Now, in the ancient Near East, they believed that the gods would speak to people through dreams. So Nebuchadnezzar believes he's getting, he's receiving some sort of information. Some, something, some bit of knowledge the gods want him to know about. They've delivered to him through this dream. And his reaction is terror. So what has happened? He's got to know. He's got to figure this out. Well, in the ancient world, what they would do was this. They had these things called dream books, massive volumes of dream books. And so magicians, sorcerers, wise men would would go to these books, and here's what they would try to do. They would try to decipher patterns. So someone would tell them the details of the dream, and then they would record the events that happened after that dream. So say you had a dream that four chickens were running through a drive-thru, okay? And then right after that, four blocks from your house, they opened up a Chick-fil-A. You see the connection? So now we know if you ever dream about chickens running through a drive-thru, count the chickens and that's how many miles the new Chick-fil-A is going to open up, right? That was their kind of mindset. If you've had that dream, praise God, okay? Clearly it's Jesus' chicken. He's, he's doing something. That was their mentality, Give us the details, we'll figure out the pattern, and then we'll know what to predict. Now, these were massive volumes, because dreams, I mean, you know, you've had a lot of dreams. Dreams were hard to, like, pin down, so they had all these peculiar elements to them. And so these massive volumes were collected in these dream book collections. And so you really had to be an expert in these books. So this is what the king does. King Nebuchadnezzar, again, he's terrified. He's early in his dream. Holding political power in the ancient Near East was not easy. The next, or out of the next three kings of Babylon, two of them were assassinated. Right? So it's hard to hold on to power. King Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And he's just starting out. He gets this dream. And he thinks of this. You know what? I'm going to make this a little bit harder. Because I could tell them my dream. And then they could just come up with some crazy interpretation. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to confirm that they really have communion with God. So he goes to the sorcerers, magicians, and the wise men. He says, here's how this is going to work. I had a dream. It scared me. You tell me my dream and the interpretation. The wise men are like, well, 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 that's not how this thing works. See, you tell us the details. We go to the books. We figure out the pattern. Then we tell you the interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar is like, I'm the king. That's not going to work that way. He knows you could easily manipulate me. 
Right? You can give me this dream and you could easily interpret it to be fortunate to me and then I will bless you. No, I need to know my kingdom is just now building. I need to know if the gods are trying to tell me something. So if you can tell me my dream that I know your connection with God is real, then give me the interpretation. Well, nobody can do this. They're just throwing up their hands and they're like, king, this is impossible. He says, okay, you can't do your job, you're cut. And by cut, I mean like chop your head off. He decides, I'm just going to kill the wise men. I mean, if you can't do your job, you need a pay cut or a head cut. Like, I don't need you anymore. So then this huge threat goes out. Now Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they somehow serve as counsel to the king. Somehow they serve him. So they're under this decree that the king is going to kill the wise men because no one can do what he wants them to do. So Daniel gets his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're probably about 17, 18 years old at this time. They're young. This is like the first recorded youth group in the Old Testament. And this is a dangerous youth group to be a part of. Okay? They're under a command to be killed. So Daniel goes up to his buds and he says, we got to figure this out. We need to pray. Let's pray and maybe God will give us the answer. Now, you may be familiar with this story. You're like, yeah, I know how this goes. God gives the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. Then Daniel gives it to the king. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Daniel's not the only one who gets the dream. Daniel's not the only one who gets the interpretation. The three boys did as well. The ones who had to face the fire or worship, they received it as well. We know this because Daniel gives a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And this is the verse up here, Daniel chapter 2, verse 23. Go back. Daniel chapter 2, verse 23. It says, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. What is he telling us here? I got the interpretation. I got the dream. But who else got it? This right here is plural. If you failed English grammar or anything like that, plural means more than one. Okay, multiples. Okay, I'm telling you that right now. There's a quiz at the end. Hopefully you get the grammar lesson right. This is the plural here. So he's saying it's not just Daniel who's getting it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get this dream. And what they see in this dream and what they know of its interpretation is what gives them confidence to face the fire. Okay, I'm going to read to you the dream. It's a lot, of, a lot of scripture here, okay? A lot of reading here. Okay, so be patient with me. But I want to illustrate the full dream because I think only in seeing the full thing can we get why these guys could sing even in uncertainty. They could sing even when they weren't certain if God would deliver them. They could sing even when maybe God didn't answer their prayer. It's rooted in this dream right here, trusting in the God who revealed this. Let's look at this dream together. This is Daniel kind of giving back to the king the dream, and then he gives him his interpretation. This is Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. Try to picture this dream in your mind's eye. He goes up to the king. He says, that was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, oh no, sorry, go all the way to verse 31. Okay, In the vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge and shining statue of man. Do I have verse 30? I do. Perfect. Verse 31. You saw this huge chapel. It was frightening 
It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And the wind blew away without a trace like chaff on a fleshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Now just stop here. We'll get to the interpretation. If you were the king, you can see why he was terrified. He sees this giant statue of precious metal, gold, silver, bronze, all these materials, right? And then he sees out of nowhere this rock carved from a mountain, thrown at the feet of the statue, and then this thing is smashed. So much so that it's like little tiny pieces that the wind just blows it all away. King Nebuchadnezzar, again, is very early in his rule. Not knowing what was being said to him, what he believed by the gods, he probably thought, that statue's me. Maybe a a foreign invader is coming in, another power is coming in, and and they're going to come in and they're going to strike at my feet, and my feet look weak compared to everything up top in this statue. My kingdom is going to crumble, and I'm going to be destroyed. You could see why I was terrified. Well, the interpretation is going to give King Nebuchadnezzar some comfort, but it's also going to give him a very clear message of God's control, right? Look at the interpretation. I'm in verse 36 now. That was the dream. Now we will tell you, the king, what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. There's some relief here. Okay, I'm not the statue. I'm not the whole thing. I'm just the head. And the rock hits the feet. So whatever happens there, I'm not going to be destroyed and devastated. Yes, there is something that happens after me. Maybe my kingdom will have a successor, another kingdom will come in, but I'm not going to face whatever that rock is. I'm not going to face that. So there's some comfort there for the king. But he's still reminded that God is in control. And he truly is the sovereign of the universe. Look at how the rest of the dream goes out to the king. We're in verse 39. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours, will rise and take your place. And after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, representing the bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. The kingdom will smash and crash all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crashes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. 
During the reign of those kings, that fourth kingdom, the kingdom of heaven will, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crash all these kingdoms in nothing, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain. Though not by human hands, that crushes to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its meaning is certain. What's being described there? We get these kind of four successive kingdoms that come up. Babylon. Now, if we were to guess, and this is just a guess because we're not told by Daniel, I think we can look at the world powers of the day that came about before Christ's return. We could say the first was Babylon, then the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then Rome. And we could see these kind of four kingdoms before Christ came. But that's not the important part. The important part isn't deciphering what are these world powers means. The important part is what is this rock that turns to a mountain? That's the important part. And Daniel says, here's what happens. Something comes from God. Carved out of a mountain, a rock is grabbed, not by human hands. What does that tell us? This is not the kingdom that you would anticipate, Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a human power. This is God's power. And he takes aim at the kingdoms of man. And he throws his rock, boom, and devastates that entire statue. All those kingdoms are dashed to pieces, only remaining as dust and then blown away. But then this rock becomes a mountain, a kingdom that will last forever and include all lands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know this They've heard this story before. They know their great King David had a promise given to him. God said to David, I'm going to make a kingdom that will last forever. Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he talked about a kingdom that he was bringing. Then he talked about how this kingdom was not only being ushered in in his ministry, but it would be fully realized when he comes again. What is God saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, saying to Daniel, and what is he confirming to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What he's confirming is this. The middle of the story looks messy, but the end is certain. Christ's kingdom is coming, and it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know this story. They know the promise given to David. They now see it confirmed right there where God shows up in a miraculous way, tells the king the dream before he even tells him one detail. And then he interprets it and says, there's a kingdom that's coming. You think Babylon is powerful? You think their furnace is hot? You think their statue is ominous? No, there's a God who is much more powerful and he will end all of these little miniature kingdoms and he will set up a rule and reign forever that includes every single square inch. And these boys say, wow, that's the one we're going to worship. Yeah, that fire that you've got prepared for us, that looks hot. Man, that statue is big. Good job. Our God is so much bigger than that. And we don't know how this middle is going to work. But we know how the end happens. See, this is trust. Trust is when you're in the middle of the mess and you convince yourself of the certainty that the end will be good. Even if you don't know. 
Even if you have no idea how God's going to move, how God's going to deliver, what God's going to do. Even if every time you offer up a prayer, it just says a no, a no, a no, and you're just sitting there in this mess thinking, how are you going to get me out of this? When you find no reason in the present to sing, no reason in the present to praise God, you have to dig down deep into that soil and find the bedrock of trust and say, I don't know how the middle's going to work out, but I know how the end's going to work out. Right? I can look forward and I can look backward. I can look backward and say, I know what he did at the cross. I know that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of my sin. My guilt is taken away. My shame has been removed. He's promised to do what he did to his son, and that was to rise him again from the grave. So I can look forward to the future and say, that's my hope. I don't know what's going to happen to this body, but I know it will be resurrected. So burn it if you want. Fill it full of holes if you want. Cut it if you want, make it bleed if you want, imprison it, starve it, feed it, burn it, boil it, whatever you want to do to it, I just know in the end he's going to raise it. In fact, the more you do to it, the more entertaining that raising might be. Because you've put me in the ground, I may be a zombie. If you burn me, then I'm going to be a genie. How cool will that be? I have to confess, I'm just going to be honest. I know this sounds really weird for a pastor, Sometimes one of the hardest things as a pastor is you have to come every Sunday and you have to sing, and you have to smile, you have to teach, you have to look happy, you have to be humble and pray, all of those things. But I have to tell you, there have been some seasons where it is hard for me to sing. Seasons of suffering, of despair, of pain, of anger even. Seasons where I've been praying that God would deliver. And he doesn't. Months and years at times of this weightiness inside that nobody else sees on a Sunday. Right, they just see, well, there's Paul in the front row. His obedient, obedient, beautiful children right here. (laughs) What would you think of your pastor if you looked over and he wasn't singing? What if you looked over at your pastor and you saw that he couldn't mouth words? Right, if I'm honest, there's been seasons where I haven't been able to sing. There have been seasons when it's been really, really hard to sing. Why? Because I'm just in a mess. I'm just in a mess. And you know what? The same thing is true, I know, for you. I'm sure at times you've looked at those big, beautiful screens. And you have saw some truth on there that you were invited to sing. And you thought, nope. Nope, not today. I can't say that one. Nope, not today. I can't, I can't sing that one. Not this week, not this time, not with this despair, not with this on the mind, not with this uncertainty, not with all this anxiety, not with all this worry, not with all this injury. I can't sing. I hear you, friend. Maybe you're there this week. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're going to get there. Can I encourage you? 
Gratitude may not be the reason you sing. But you can always trust him to get you through the mess. You can always trust him to end the story well. You don't have to pretend like everything is pleasant, everything is nice, everything is rosy. Don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to those around you. We all know life stinks sometimes. It's awful and the mess in the middle is just weighing on us. My prayer for you is that you would get a very clear picture. You would hear and feel it would be like a concrete idea in your heart. That you can trust the one who will end the story well. Even when you're in the middle of the mess. Trust sings much more louder than gratitude. So whether you're going through a divorce, whether you're dealing with a custody battle, whether you're dealing with a diagnosis, or maybe you just buried one you loved for over 30 years and you're sitting here in this room and you're thinking, how could I ever sing? Sing to the one who writes a great ending and that will get you through the mess of the middle. Sing to the one who wrote a great beginning, a great beginning of your story that he created you, redeemed you, and has forgiven your sins in Jesus Christ. Look back and see what he did with his son. Look forward to the promise that he's given. And in there, know that hope is that feeling, knowing that what you're feeling right now, you won't feel forever. Hope is that feeling, knowing that what you're feeling right now, you won't feel forever. Hope is that overwhelming sense. What's happening right now won't be what's happening forever because I can trust the one who wrote the end of the story. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're exploring Christianity and you thought to yourself, you know what? It's signed and sealed, no. Right? You're telling me that if I follow Jesus, he's not going to get me through all the messes in this life. He's not going to deliver me from all of my problems. He's not going to make my life comfortable and easy. Friend, I need to tell you right up front. I'm not going to try to sell you on Jesus. I'm going to tell you right up front, signing up to follow Jesus means you're going to bear a cross. And it's going to be hard, and it's not going to be easy. And you may find yourself like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing that crossroads where you've got to decide where your heart will truly be devoted to. So don't jump into following Jesus if you want the easy road to this life. But hear me, hear me. I know you know this. You know this life is unpredictable. You know it's chaotic, and you know that causes anxiety in you. It causes uncertainty in you. Please hear me. Jesus will not take away all the uncertainty in your life. He won't take away all the anxiety in your life. But he will speak to your deepest uncertainty, your deepest anxiety, and that is this. Why was I created? What is the meaning of all of this? He created you to love you. He created you to be in relationship with him. And if you trust in him, the way he'll write the ending of the story will blow your mind. And knowing how it all ends will help you deal with all the uncertainty in the middle. I wish I could tell you that all the middle mess will be mended and, and, and taken away at the moment you believe it won't. But he'll end it well. Trust in him and he'll end that story well for you. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you'll find in our worship something deep, something solid, something true, something not shallow, but something with great integrity, 
Something with great certainty. Something that is solid, true, and concrete. Father, I know, I, I don't know all the stories in this room, but I know, I know en- enough to know that life isn't always easy. Life is hard. And sometimes what you, the things that you've allowed, that you've dealt into our, our life, they make this life just one that is hard to work through, hard to walk through. At times we just want to throw up our hands and just give up. Father, help us to see the end. Give us that grand vision that you gave to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you are ultimately the king who brings the kingdom. You don't need assistance. You don't need help. You don't need a ballot box. You don't need politicians. You carve out that rock from the mountain, and it is your hand who throws it and dashes it against those kingdoms. You are the one who takes out that statue. You are the one who dashes it to pieces. You are the sovereign. You don't need us. But then you invite us to be in this kingdom. Oh, I can't wait for that end. I pray right now, whatever the mess people are going through right now, in the middle that they're going through right now, whether it's spiritual, relational, financial, familial, whatever it is, Father, I pray right now you would speak a clear picture, a vivid image of the end. So bright, so vivid, so colorful that we're captured in our emotions by it. Even though we don't see it right now in the middle of the mess, would you lift our vision to the future? And we could say, I know how it ends, so I'll sing in my pain. I'll sing in my suffering. I'll sing because the soil of my praise runs so incredibly deep. Beyond the deliverance of my present problems, I am delivered from my future problem, my ultimate problem. And that's separation from you. Father, just as we sing right now, may the volume of our voices show that the vision of the end is in our hearts. Be with us as we worship you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.